There's this Fincher quote that has absolutely haunted me as I've inched closer and closer to directing my first film. The quote is this, the fact is you don't know what directing is until the sun is setting and you've got to get five shots and you're only going to get two. Now, <laughs> that has been absolutely true as I've directed more and more commercials, shorts, and performance videos. There's almost always a moment in which the entire fate of the project hangs in the balance and how you make decisions in those moments is the real job. So as someone who hasn't yet directed a feature, it's easy to idealize making a movie, but it's anything but ideal. It's blood and sweat and tears and bone and marrow. It's real, not some pie in the sky fantasy. So as I get closer to making my own film, I've found myself wanting to ask so many questions of my friends and directing peers who have managed to run the gauntlet of making their own features. To be honest, they all come back to some version of a core question, which is this. What is the actual reality of directing a movie? How does it feel? What does it look like? So that's what this podcast is about. Notes on directing emerging out of conversations between two directors. Not the film school ideals, not the glorified hindsight, but directing. When you're truly in it. When you're asking yourself why the hell you ever had the audacity to think that you could do this. Welcome to the Process Dispatch. All right, my name is Ryan Booth, and this is episode two of The Process Dispatch. This is a conversation that I recorded with Bassam Tariq nearly in the middle of the night back in the summer of 2020. Bassam is a, is a dear friend of mine. Uh, we first met in Houston. We we're both from Houston, Texas. Bassam reached out and was inquiring about my availability for a DP project. And I actually was in the process of trying to make the transition from DPing to directing. And I turned him down because I was in a phase of making that jump in which I knew that I had to stop saying yes to cool opportunities as a DP if I was ever going to make it in directing. But I said no by saying, can we meet in person? And so we met up in Houston at a coffee shop. And what was supposed to be a you know half hour conversation turned into two or three hours in which it just felt like we'd known each other for years. So I ended up not DPing that project with him, but we became quite close and have been in touch uh, off and on over the years. So he directed his first feature called Mogul Mowgli. I was fortunate enough to be there at multiple steps along this process. Pulse Films, which is the commercial production company that I'm, um, that we're both repped at, actually does have a film and television department in the UK and they ended up helping produce his first movie. And so one day when I was in London, uh, actually walking into the Pulse office in, in London, uh, prepping a commercial, I ran into Bassam coming out of a conference room and we both just like, like, oh my God, what are you doing here? Uh, this is so bizarre. And we went out and got lunch and he just unloaded about the process. You know, I think I, I was a, a familiar face at that point. You know, it was really great to kind of be able to connect in that way. I ended up back in the UK on a commercial um, and it was when he was in post-production on the film. So we met up again and kind of talked about things. And then after he wrapped post on the film, he ended up moving to New York just down the street from me. And so we would go on long walks in the neighborhood just talking about where we were and, and what was happening and what we were hoping to accomplish. And so, you know, Bassam is an incredibly thoughtful guy. You'll hear that in this interview. He thinks very deeply about the world around him and the ways in which he can be of service through his filmmaking. 
Again, this conversation was recorded a couple of years ago, back in the summer of 2020, well before it had been announced that Bassam had been tapped to direct the new Marvel movie. You know, if you've been following the news in the last couple of weeks, Bassam has since left that project as director and has moved into an EP role for that project. And it's been an enormous amount of growth and just seeing the journey he's been on in the last couple of years since we've spoken has been really, really encouraging to me. I know it hasn't been easy. He's never worked harder in his life, as he's told me. I'm sure we'll unpack it all at some point, but I couldn't be prouder of Bassam and more excited about his future and what projects he's going to be working on. And I think Bassam has such a clear identity as a filmmaker, as a director. He's very specific about his choices and his collaborators. Anyway, uh, we don't really touch on anything Marvel related. So for those of you listening for that purpose, uh, that won't be in this interview. But what will be in this interview is his very, very thoughtful and deep approach to directing films. Now, this ended up being an extremely long conversation. Uh, Bassam and I, every time we ever hang out, end up talking for hours at a time. And so I'm going to release this in two pieces uh, just because it was a great conversation, but it was quite long. So uh, this is going to be part one um, of the Bassam Tariq interview. And I hope you enjoy and hope you take as much away from this as I did. I have revisited this conversation just in, in kind of getting ready to release this podcast. And I texted him immediately after re-listening and just said, man, I love when we get to talk about films. So I hope it's as meaningful to you as it was to me. And without further ado, this is Bassam Tariq. I'm going to start. I'm starting. All right, we're recording now. One thing that I loved about your following is it's a lot of curious young people that have a desire to make great work. Yeah. And whenever you've been so generous to give me a shout out and then somebody, it just happens where I'll then have like a hundred new followers (laughs) or something. And a few of them will like send me some of this stuff and it's amazing stuff. I'm just like, Oh my God, there's so, there's so much talent out there. And yeah, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to be noticed or it's hard to really break out from, uh, you know, a certain kind of, a bubble, you know, I think, yeah, but, for sure. um, but, but I see it, I see like all this stuff. So, so I also think that like, that's why I'm excited about this conversation is because, you know, it's, I can't have a hundred conversations with, with, you know, hundred other people, but you know, if, if maybe the questions that you have are probably questions that even I had that I wish I knew where to turn to, you know, and totally it's always a bit tough. So but yeah, but I'm excited to be doing it. My buddy Chris told me, I think one of the most interesting perspectives on what like why he likes filmmaking as a medium that I feel like I've kind of carried with me is that he said that the thing that I love about filmmaking is that you get to have a private conversation at scale. You know, when a musician stands on a stage, there's a very different experience when I sit in my room and listen to the music versus when I'm in a room with 10,000 other people. It's a different transaction, Mm. but a film is a private conversation with the filmmaker even if there's you know 300 other people in the theater i'm only having my own experience with the film and i think that that to me is something that has been continually revealed is that there is kind of a a one-on-one exchange that you get to have at scale and and not just like the final film but all of the conversations that we have 
around making the films, around, you know, even determining what ideas we want to chase down, what we want to write and what we want to, you know, what stories we want to tell. Like they're all one-on-one conversations um, that kind of continually pile onto this thing that then becomes this film. That to me, the the kind of one-on-one conversational nature of this art form, I think is, I love it, man. I, I, yeah. like, I love, wow, I love that. those conversations for sure. What I wanted to say, if just, I'll add, I'll add one little thing to what you said that, that I think I also love about that conversation is that it's also accessible. Um, unlike a lot of modern art where you walk into a gallery, sometimes it's an artist having a conversation about like Kafka's aphorisms or something. And I'm just like, wait, I don't, I don't like, I don't have that. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that point of reference. And I think what's so great about the best of film is that I don't need a point of reference. I can sit in and it is something that we as an audience demand to be accessible, right? Like where we all have an exciting opinion about it in a way where we'll engage with it, you know, and then we'll come out of it feeling either completely pissed or excited or, or whatever. But, but we as an audience understand how to engage with the format, right? Versus coming into a gallery, which is also great. Like I love, I feel like a lot of my inspiration comes from artists, you know, in galleries or, um, you know, in, in the space outside of, you know, what, what we actually do is more commercial, you know, in their eyes, which, which is true. So yeah, for sure. But, but, but it exists for this conversation. Yeah. I think that's such a great way to put it. Okay. So let's jump back. We don't have to go all the way back, <laughs> but I am curious, what was it about film that made you, or when was the moment that you realized that film was something that you could pursue as a career or something that you got paid to do? <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's a really, yeah. Okay. So I, I would say that the first film that really just blew me away and I was like, oh wait, there's, there's maybe a path for me in this. And just, I think, you know, context is important. So born in Pakistan, raised in Queens, New York. My parents are working class. And then I came in for like a little bit of middle school and high school I did in Texas. And I moved to the suburbs when I was about like 14. We moved to Sugarland, But before that, I was in Southwest Houston. So I was in A-Leaf. You know, it was, it was rough. It was actually rougher than the neighborhood that I was in Queens. And then when we moved to the Burbs, I think 9-11 happened. And I think I was about 14 or something around that time or 15. And at that point, I think I had become this ambassador, like this Muslim ambassador. So every decision I had made at that point after that, after 9-11 was like, I want to make sure that I'm making Muslims look good. Mm. And that's kind of an awful thing that I put on myself. But I would also say that a lot of like my teachers, Whenever I do something bad, they would be like, oh, well, what would people think about Muslims if you did that, right? So wow. it, was, it was kind of, yeah, it was, a bit, it was a bit messed up when I think about it now. But I kind of liked the attention that I got from it. But, but I also realized that I can't mess up as much, yeah. which is also, I think, antithetical to, to filmmaking. Because I think hmm. the, whole, the whole idea of filmmaking for me that I've realized later on in my life is you need the permission to make mistakes in order to grow. And if, if you don't allow yourself to trip up, you're going to just fail in your first thing and you're never going to make anything again. Wow. So, so I think because of that fear of failure in the eyes of a larger public, I just stayed in a really safe lane and did speech and debate. <laughs> and I loved speech and debate. Like, you know, I did like weird like events and stuff like that. But that was sort of my creative outlet because drama and film just felt like, no, you, you don't do that. Like, that's stupid. And it, it's a waste of time. But I think the film that kind of gave me an opening to see like, wait, there is a way to enter this 
being who I am, where, you know, I myself am Pakistani and, you know, Muslim. Uh, I saw the film Taste of Cherry by Abbas Kiristami. And I just got it from Blockbuster. <laughs> and this was like my senior year of high school. And, you know, it was just amazing to see this experimental film that was also so simple. It was a man that wanted to commit suicide. And I've only seen it once, right? It's one of those films that I saw once and I don't think I, I don't have an interest to see it again because how it affected me at that moment is something that I'll never forget. And I knew that like, okay, that's what I'm going to hold on to. But I think it was deeply specific with a Persian experience, but also a very strong Islamic understanding. And it also won, like I think at Cannes, I think it won or it was, at least it premiered at Cannes and it had this incredible foreign reception. So it's, I think seeing all these elements of people critically you know loving it as well as like me connecting to it on a like oh wow these are like people that are kind of like me that are doing something like this like it started to make it like oh this is possible like i can do something that is breaking what is the mold that i'm supposed to stay in right i was dude i was supposed to be a doctor right like yeah, that's what yeah. i was doing hosa and all that stuff but anyway i go in i get into like you know so I go to ut but but the reason why i picked up a camera for the first time was because I was actually doing medical testing on my body to, to help pay the bills and it was just not working out and it was just wow. demeaning. Yeah, it was just like not something that I would recommend anyone to do. So I had this Vietnamese friend who did wedding videos for a living and was like, yo, like just 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 like shut up, grab my camera and like start shooting some videos for like, you know, different weddings and this and that and I had a bit of a, like a, you know, an ego and I was just like, well, I'm not going to shoot wedding videos <laughs> now, but I like, I ended up like doing these like little gigs here and there, but that, that was what it was for me. Like the camera for me was utility and a way to make money because I couldn't qualify for any loans or anything. So, you know, because my, my parents, you know, credit and all that, they didn't really have good credit. So I had to figure out a way to pay, pay through college. And, and it was really, it was a camera. The camera really was my way out. And I think at that time, Adobe Premiere was like pirated and, you know, I got this little Dell. So that was, that was how I did it. And I took a class called uh, Iranian Cinema at UT in Austin. And it was in that, and I saw a few films that just blew me away. And the other one was The Day I Became a Woman, which is this, this triptych. Have you seen it, Ryan? I haven't. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really like, specific film as well, but it's Day Became a Woman and the woman Iranian director who it's like this triptych film and it gets each part of it it's like these three different stories and each part is so incredible and well put together and the way it ends is just so unbelievable and I was just like oh my god this is what cinema can be mm. and I started to to realize okay I do have an interest in this but I could never major in film I, I majored in advertising because it felt like the safe way out and I always knew that my goal was to get back to New York in some capacity. So anyway, I, I moved to New York and I made a few friends that were that were in the film industry or kind of adjacent to it. And it, I think that was sort of my gateway into it. My roommate uh, had made a few documentaries and I saw this other Muslim kid from Indiana. That's who he was. His name's Musa Sayed. And he was like freelancing and making enough money. And we lived in Harlem together. And I was working in advertising and I was miserable. I was like doing kids' uh, cereals. I was writing kids' cereal commercials. <laughs> and I was really bad at it. Honestly, Ryan, I would have I would have kept at it if I was good. But Jerry Graff hired me right out of school. And it Did was really, really cool. I was like, yeah, Jerry Graff hired me. And I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. Wow. Jerry hired me. So I guess, and the thing is like, I just worked on my portfolio over the summer because I never really had 
a real portfolio, but but I kind of like figured out like, oh, this is what I can do to to make it a good book or whatever. And I don't know how I got in. It was just during the financial crisis, and you know, I was able to keep my job through it. But I was just really bad at my job. And I think Jerry once brought me into the office, and he was just like, hey, look, like you know, we're gonna let you go, but we're gonna let you leave on your own accord, which is so nice of him. It was such a dignified way to like let me out. He goes, whatever time you need, we'll let, we'll give you the time, but you know. It's, you can <laughs> you need to start packing your bag wow. and i'm so happy that he gave me that out where i could leave sort of on my own terms so i didn't feel bad about it and i didn't like and i mean the only thing i missed was a few of the friends that i made but i didn't miss a day working at that wow. agency i yeah, think totally i was so happy to be out and at that point i'd started to sketch the you know my, my leavings for my for my first film which is these birds walk and that that happened with this photographer that I met um, around the same time who was doing a gallery in Chelsea. And he had done these these incredible like portraits of Muslims in America that I'd never seen anyone do before. And I think he shared the same kind of working class background. He himself was was a Londoner that moved to New York when he was 19. He was a, he's about like 15 years older than me. His name's Omar Malik, and he's a phenomenal DP now. But back then, like he was still a photographer and I was like this young 20, two-year-old kid and I was just like dude so I just got I just got let go uh let's let's do this like let's let's make our way to Pakistan so we we put some money together and there was like this person that I really wanted to follow in Pakistan and we got the access to him and him him and I are both Pakistani and we just had I knew a little bit of broken Urdu and I have a lot of family that lives there so I was like great we'll crash my family and we'll figure this out and we thought we'd go there for about two weeks I mean or, or three weeks or something and this was really at the advent of the 5D Mark II. Yeah, I was um, going to say. I think that's really important to mention that, like, what the 5D Mark II allowed was it allowed for a lot of photographers and a lot of like young videographers like myself to just kind of grab a camera and do really well with low light, pick up any other lenses, right? Like, you just were able to do things in a really exciting way. And, you know, and at that time, Adobe Premiere was really good at ingesting the footage, uh, whatever. But, like, it was, it was all, it was, I think that was sort of the way in for us. And when I was out in the field, I, I think that's when I realized, like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, what was supposed to be a three-week trip ended up being a six-month in Pakistan. And really? we were there. Yeah, yeah, Ryan. And it was crazy, man. It was, we were there in 2011 wow. in yeah, the sure. year where there was more violence in Karachi that year than there was in Baghdad. And the war in Baghdad was, you know, a, a very severe, like the war in Iraq was like at its height. It was really bad. But what was going on in Karachi was worse. There was like bombings and like, you know, buses and like, you know, we'd see streets. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I think we, I think, you know, I, I probably had a little PTSD after that because there were once, like once or twice, like we were about to be kidnapped and this and that, like, but whatever. It was, it was one of those experiences where I think we realized that we came in with a very strong construct. And we didn't want to lose that. And mm. we then made two subsequent trips to Pakistan with a little rough cut that we had. We shared it with the Sundance, you know, the film fund, and they got behind the film in a way that I think really was pivotal for our film as well as our life. I think we were part of the labs and, you know, there we met a oscilloscope who then were like, we'd love your film. We'd love to distribute it. So before we even finished the film, we're like, great, we know where we're going to go with it. And then we ended up doing this like interesting premiere with True False and South By, you know, and that was, so it took about, yeah, the film came out in 2013, 2014. And yeah, it was, it was really tough. I'm not going to lie. Like it was a really tough moment where the film comes out and I guess 
I expected, I don't know what I really expected, but docs are a very fickle thing mm. where people, you know, the, the, the main question everyone asks you after you make, you know, your first doc or whatever is like, oh, what are you doing next? Mm. And I was like, wait, I need to know what I'm doing next. I thought yeah. this would be my big payday, but it, it's not. And I think particularly with docs, it's at that time, it wasn't the Netflix of the world were not, you know, in the, they are what they are now. Yeah. 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 So (laughs) back then, like if you just got someone to acquire your film was a big enough deal, you know? So, you know, there was no advance. And I think we had an amazing run. I think we did really well in New York. We did really well in LA and a lot of other cities. It opened up. It was really an exciting time. And I think the critics were the ones that really propelled the film for us because it was a really small little thing that we did. And a lot of the doc community got behind us and really supported it. So, but, but I think if there's one thing that I learned from that, and, and I think this is the one thing that I think was really important about your first experience is that Omar and I, we made our mistakes and nobody else, you know, and there was nobody there to tell us what not to do. So if we wanted to flip the camera or if we wanted to do this, or we wanted this like long chase scene all the way up to a temple, you know, like we were going to do it. And that's what we did. And then when we wanted to do it with the music, like we would just do whatever the hell we wanted to do with it. And I think that's the way you want to do something that is your first, where you are able to explore and experiment and have a partner in crime that kind of emboldens you. And I think that's what we had with each other was this kind of this really strong relationship where we can really look to each other to really take those risks and and, you know, feel safe at throwing out stupid ideas with each other. Did you know that you wanted to make this film or were you kind of like following the story? I'm curious where the impulse came for you to continue down that path to make this feature. Yeah. So, um, and I think it's good. I noted in the beginning that like, like after 9-11, I became sort of this ambassador type Muslim. But what I did was I decided to kind of strip away this cultural Pakistani identity I come from, I was like, no, I'm just going to be this deeply American Muslim that it Mm. doesn't matter where I come from. What matters is where I am now and what this new culture is that I'm building here. And I think when I moved to New York and I was kind of deep in this, this kind of thought process of like, you know, forget where I came from. It's more important to just be present with now was I realized that was actually very hollow and you know, my lineage is important. So in some ways, I was looking to find somebody or something that I can hold on to to anchor me to my relationship with Pakistan, where I was actually born. And I found this guy, Abdul Siddhar Idi, who is this man that like, it's a fascinating story where here's this man that like, illiterate, only educates like third grade. He sold like candy at the, at the side of the streets in Pakistan. And in the 1950s, he like sold his candy shop and he bought a blue van and he wrote on the side of it, poor man's van. And he started like transporting the sick and dead to their fated destination. And little did he know it was the first ambulance in the entire country. Wow. And and then like he now, then he had like the largest private fleet of ambulances in the world. And he takes no money from corporations. He, this is not a missionary guy. Like he's, he's not affiliated with any religion, you know? So it's not like, so some people compare him to Mother Teresa, but Mother Teresa was very much a part of a large infrastructure, right? Yeah, Apparatus of sure. Catholic, you know, missionaries, which is cool. Like that's, I would never want to like downplay her work. Her work's incredible. But like this man was like an independent, stubborn, difficult person that had very strong like Marxist views and believed in, you know, feeding the poor. He barely took showers. And I was like, this guy fascinates the hell out of me. I read his autobiography 
And I was like, I need to meet him before he dies because he's a quite old man. So that was sort of the impulse of going out to Pakistan was like learning more about a figure like this. And I've always been kind of intrigued by these figures of, of like saints uh, or supposed saints. And, and I think it comes from this like feeling of like, okay, is, is goodness a real thing or is it that we're all just corrupt assholes, right? Because like, I think <laughs> nihilism, like, you know, growing up and being really into like, you know, Adult Swim and Tim and Eric and these really like funny shows, but deeply nihilistic, I, I, yeah. I'd say. And, you know, uh, a bit, <laughs> a bit like, you know, a bit harsh at, at the world and everything's a bit dark. And, you know, and I think p- perhaps being in school during like the Bush years, things came to be very much like, yeah, everything kind of sucks, so fuck it, right? And right. realizing that like that actually comes to an end at a point where you're just like, wait, there's got to be more of this. It just can't, there has to be some hope. Right. So I think that's when, you know, I was looking for figures like him. And what's funny is he was such a difficult man to deal with, but it was amazing. Like, I, I feel like I, I learned and grew so much working with him. It's so interesting hearing you talk about kind of the spiritual dimension of your growth, basically, both as a young person and into filmmaking. Because I do, I do think that nihilism, I think for me has always been, I just can't, I can't fully embrace it. Mm-hmm. I grew up obviously in a very kind of conservative Christian environment and it's completely shaped me. But I think that, that a, a huge part of it is even as I've kind of come out of a particular brand of kind of Christianity, the the kind of spiritual nature and spiritual dimension to my view of not just the world, but my work um, has not gone away. So the the nihilism never felt like a home for me. It always felt a little like maybe a palate cleanser or something where you just kind of like, (laughs) you know, you embrace it for a minute and you're like, oh, this is kind of, this doesn't really, this doesn't really work for me. Yeah. But it's interesting to be like on the inverse of what you're saying, because like, but the Bush years for my my kind of expression of religion, the kind of evangelical Christianity, oh, wow. that was, dude, Beautiful. that was like, wow. we've never had more purpose than now, like we're doing God's work and like, it's going to be hard and people aren't going to like it, but like, you know, we're, so we're bringing things to, I mean, it was like, that was kind of peak spiritual, political blending you know for the kind of tradition i grew up in which is i'll i'll untangle that at some point i haven't gotten there yet but um you know in in film form but um anyway that's yes super fascinating that's so beautiful man yeah that's so beautiful and i think like you know it's it's uh, something that i will say that like i just feel at this point well done is better than well said so Mm. You know, and any like any conversations that come to spirituality are just like, you know what, man, it's got to be it's got to be in the work, you know, and but 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 whenever anyone like starts talking to me and these like empty platitudes about God and, you know, yeah, the spiritual truth or like the heavens and it's all coming together, the cosmos and just like, dude, shut up. Like <laughs> if if any of this stuff exists. Right. And like I've got my strong beliefs about these things, like but I'm like I want it to be you know, in my work and how I am with my children and how I am with my family, how I am with like my friends and my relationships, you know, yeah. how I am on set. Right. Like, I think that's where it really counts. And other than that, like, I'm just, a, then you're just a fraud. If you just sit there and you're like, all right, guys, we're going to do all these like spiritual things. And then you're like having like these crazy freakouts, you know, and like, that's just, I don't know. It's just not, it's, it, you know, so I know, I don't know. 
So let's talk about documentaries. Was your experience making These Birds Walk, were you interested in making more documentaries? Was there an expression of documentaries that you found particularly compelling? Or were you then interested to kind of, you know, turn your attention to narrative? I'm curious kind of what the waters were like post making a feature doc. What's so exciting about documentary is the best of it for me is the best of cinema. Like when you think of films like Leviathan, you think of films like Kate Plays Christine by Robert Greene, which I think is a, a great film. I mean, there's so many films that, that I, I feel like I'm missing at the tip of my tongue. But what I love about documentary when it works for me is it's two things I've realized. One is access, right, that you can get. And then two is the construct. What is the way that you're telling the story, right? And I think with access also comes what is your relationship to the access? I think that is instrumental in documentary. So just to say it again, those two things are access and your relationship to the access. And then the part two of it is what's the construct or the visual conceit that you're telling the story in. Those are the two things that matter to me the most in documentary. And the reason why I think so is because the, the films that I love have strong authorship, have a very strong point of view. Like, yeah, one of my best docu- like one of my favorite pieces of cinema are like, there's two, there's, my favorite picture of you, which is a short, and then uh, my dead dad's porno tapes. Like those two are some of like the best pieces of cinema I've seen. It's so good. And every time I see it, I cry. And, mm. you know, and they're short, like five, one's like three minutes and the other one's 10 minutes. But the weight of it and what it says and how it says it is like only those people could have made that film. And it comes from such a special and strong conceit that they could have only told this in that way. And, you know, and I think that, that, that was the two things that I took out of These Birds Walk. And I did have an interest to make a few more documentaries, but at the same time, I had children. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and right when I had kids, I realized that it's, it's an unsustainable approach to be away from family for that long. And, um, and I was actually chasing a lot of leads of stories, but I realized that I would have really cool constructs. But my access or relationship to the material, it didn't feel like I had something at stake. It was more like this would be a really cool pitch to Netflix. You know what I mean? I realized it like, doesn't work like that anymore. Like For, for the films that really work, it, there's a very strong personal connection to the material. And mm. the stuff year, year after year, stuff that is getting notoriety, stuff that's getting the attention of peers. or even I mean, I'm sorry, I hate to like put it in those terms because I think that stuff is also very poisonous but you know it's, it's a way of at least measuring something for for people that are looking to break in is is it stuff that you you know you the filmmaker are connected to in some capacity like you look at the edge of democracy by petra that was nominated for an oscar like this is a deeply personal story for her in brazil it deals with people in her family that she's connected to yeah. you look at an american factory which won the oscar like here's somebody julia reichert that her whole life has been dealing with stories of working people yeah you know or even you know like laura poitras which she did with citizen citizen uh yes she'll kill me so you know it's just like (laughs) i i realize that like with with all these films like there is a very deep connection that people have to material not not just a fascination right i think fascination is one thing and yeah you have a lot of these documentaries of like yeah i was fascinated about this thing and then i followed it this rabbit hole and it's cool and it's very like vicey and it's fun, mm. but it doesn't have the same, I would say, emotional impact as like For Sama has or, yeah. um, you know, Five Broken Cameras. Just films that only like those people could have made that are in those circumstances at that time in their life. And that's what I love about documentaries, the urgency and the 
and and like the, the living quality of it. It's living, it's real. And you can tell the difference between a real living documentary cinematic experience versus co- branded content, which is something that I started doing yeah. because I was like, oh, cool, I did this, I can try this. And you realize that you come in, you meet somebody for a few days and you try to build this connection to, you know, this a call to action in the end for a brand. And it's so hard to do. And your investment in it is very different and their investment in it is also different because we're all on a day rate and we're all trying to keep the client happy. And at the same time, maybe perhaps we can have a balance of getting something exciting that might get us like a Vimeo staff, right? And (laughs) maybe like we'll win some like small ad awards on the side that'll then help us, you know, feed our families for another week or something. Um, And it's fine. Like, and I think that's important. Like, you know, I mean, before COVID, I was, you know, I was like knocking on doors for like branded content work because, you know, you need to be able to, to do these things in, in different capacities. Yeah. I will also mention that I got fired or I lost work um, after these birds walk when I tried to do documentaries that didn't, that might, that might have had a cool construct, but I myself was not emotionally invested in. And mm. one, was a, one was a Netflix project um, that I was kicked off. On. It was really tough. Like, I'm not going to lie. But I think it's important to mention you. These yeah. moments where where you do fail, and yeah. you know, it wasn't that we didn't put the effort in. It was just that the way we were putting the effort in was just a bit different. It wasn't the way that I think the team wanted it to happen, and we were let go in the middle of production, and it was really in the hard. Of production, on. yeah, yeah. Oh, we wow. we like, like we had done. I think the first half of the shoot, and also, I mean, I would say that the execs weren't there. They kind of, you know, didn't really know what the show was. So then they were just like, uh, we're just going to go this other way with it. So. Got I think it. it was probably more of like a directional change, but nevertheless, it, it, it affects you because I, I finished these birds walk in 2013. And then, you know, for a year and a half, I'm in Egypt or I'm, you know, trying to do these other smaller things to try to help pay the bills. And I'm freelancing and advertising to, you know, to make ends meet while I try to get this other, uh, another big documentary project or some kind of narrative project off the ground. And it's just not, it's not landing. Like I'm not able to land it. And then mm. 2016 comes around and these two big projects that I'm a part of fall through. And it's just this moment of like, maybe I'm just not good at this. Yeah, and, totally. You know, and you're just like, and then I remember I was, I was, I was lucky enough, but like, you know, Sundance gave me, there was this thing called the art of nonfiction that I was a part of. It was this first year that they started it. And basically it was about how do we continue to push the cinematic language of documentary. And the whole thing just became a year-long exercise on who are you, the man or the woman that holds the camera and how that camera is connected to your heart. Basically, like how a pen is for a writer and how that only that person can write with that pen. Only you as a filmmaker, the way you connect to that camera is how you see the world. And it was a powerful experience that I think started making me see myself outside of my relationship with my co-director, who I'm super close with. We're like very close friends. But I started to realize that like, oh my God, that maybe there's certain things that fascinate me that do not fascinate him and that's okay. Yeah. And you know, there are a lot of things that fascinate him that don't fascinate me and that's also okay. So I think that was really hard for me because I always saw us like, you know, till death we were gonna like be doing shit together. And I do see it like working together, but you know, I think this is a general thing that happens with a lot of you know, your first film generally with documentary, like you'll see a lot of them are co directing films. Yeah. It happens a lot. Yeah. And um I, you're saying that I, I haven't noticed that actually that a lot of people co-direct um, documentaries at the beginning. Do you feel co-directing for you was a 
conscious choice? Were you a frog boiling in water that you turned around and realized like, oh, I guess we're co-directing? How conscious was co-directing for you? And what about co-directing served you at that point in your career? I think I lacked confidence to, to ever be on my own. I think that's the, the truth of it, was I didn't have the confidence. And even going into These Birds Walk, when Omar and I were speaking, I was like, you know, and, and we're very open about this, where I was like, yeah, you'll just be the director and I'll be the producer. He's like, okay, cool. And, you know, it wasn't that he asked to be the director and I would be the producer. Like, I just didn't even, I was afraid that nobody wanted to work with me. And uh, I thought he was this incredible photographer and, you know, we can do this together. So if I just give him the directing credit, then he'll he'll want to work with me or something like that. So I think my head was <laughs> processing it. And and I think it was really him that when we were submitting an application, he was like, look, we're, we're co-directing this. We've done this together from the start. And that really meant a lot to me. Yeah. And, you know, and then uh, I said, thank you. Like, that really means a lot. But, you know, if he said no, I would have like been like, okay, that's fine. Like, that's, you know, because like, that's what we decided in the beginning. But it was him that opened that door for me to, to for me to start seeing myself as something more. And that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, like you know what, man? Like the one thing that I love about filmmaking is it's about for me. It's just been relationships. Like when I look at my films, I think that's what. Or I look at the little work that I do. It's like I like I love those relationships that I've made in the process yeah. of it yeah. more than like just like the film or whatever. Because yeah, the film exists and whatever. It's doing its own thing, but. It's really those relationships that come out of it that are the things or any project that I do that, that I that I look back at because that's the stuff that's going to last longer than just something that's going to be on somebody's, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's an artifact that's going to sit on a, a table for somebody or maybe just, you know, they'll like watch 10 minutes of it on Netflix. But, you know, but what I experienced is what will always be with me. Totally. So I want to make sure that those are the, you know, the relationships around those are the, are the ones that matter. Totally. But I think, yeah, sorry to answer your question. For me, the co-directing thing was about, and I think it stayed that way because anytime I had an idea that I liked, that I wanted to pursue, I'd always look for his permission. Mm. And he was always great about it. And he was just like, well, if you're interested, like just, you know, do it. it. Like he was always like empowering me to to kind of chase my own fascinations. And and I think that's that's the really important thing in in these kind of partnerships is, is to really find someone that can kind of continue and help you grow. Like there are a lot of really strong co-directing um, documentary filmmakers is Heidi and Rachel uh, from Loki Films. Mm. They've done I don't know like seven or eight films together. Yeah. Um, there's uh, what is it the Ross brothers? Yeah, there's just but you know there there are a lot of people that exist like this. So yeah, I think the point for me is those people they're still directing together. But I feel like just in my observation of your career that that must have been a stop along the journey as opposed to kind of the expression of how you wanted to make films, you know? I never saw myself as like this a solo director, I'll be honest. But then I think it came to be to the point where like I felt that there were ideas that I was compelled to try. So I started and I think in 2017, just experimenting and tinkering a little bit more on my own, you know? And I think that's what's really important that I've realized is that you can't you can't make claims of what you want your thing to be. Mm, like I feel like okay. that. And I think that's maybe interesting. I mean, yeah, I think some people some people do say that like, well, you have to, you know, you have to believe it and then you'll you'll reach it and you do these like <laughs> affirmation techniques, right? Which is cool. Like these positive positive affirmation things. And I think that's really if it helps you, I think that's amazing. But I think in order for that stuff to work, they have to be intellectually sound for you to believe in. But if you don't even believe that you have the capacity to do it and your self-esteem is so low yeah. like for me i've always kind of been 
dealing with a very low self-esteem, I've realized that the way for me to battle that was to just start start off like I'm a newbie. Yeah. So like I started working with, I think, I worked with, I think, you know, a lot of really exciting people right after these Brits walk and all these projects that kind of fell apart. So then I felt like, okay, I have to go back to the ground. So I was working with a lot of like young editors that just got out of like school that were giving me unnecessary attitude, you know, like young producers that were giving me unnecessary attitude. It was humbling. It was exciting because I was like, oh my God, I'm like a father of like two kids. I'm almost about to turn 30 and I'm like back at this point and, you know, and I was fine. Like I was like, okay, cool. Like I actually realized I never went to film school. So Mm. in a way, like I'm going to film school now and I'm going to work with these people and I'm going to learn from them. And I learned so much from them. I think a lot of the, you know, the young cats, they, they showed me a lot of things and and I kind of got my foot into the, like the branded content space and at a very low level, like, you know, super low level where the budgets were nothing. But for me, it was like money that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I think what's important to also note is around this time, you know, in this time frame of 2017 to about early, yeah, no, sorry, from 2016 to about 2018, those years, my wife was the breadwinner. So (laughs) while we had two young kids living in Queens, my wife was like really the one that was making more of the money. I was lucky enough that, you know, we owned a butchery and that was giving some money, but it wasn't a lot. And, you know, I had like speaking gigs because I gave a TED talk. So that gave me this option to go and speak at universities and I would get paid decent money because I was booked with a speaking agency. So they would ask for larger amounts of money. So that would like sometimes, you know, it, it would help pay for things. But I would say generally, well, I was allowed to take these risks and work with younger people because I had, you know, a wife that was providing for us totally. and taking care. Totally, man. I mean, I think that that, like, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it, <laughs> it feels like when one project ends and the next project has not revealed itself yet, that that is a dangerous time period that if you try and rush through it, you might end up saying yes to a bunch of stuff that, like, you're going to regret later. You know, you could get sidetracked or distracted by saying yes to a branded project that takes you off into something that distracts you from the kind of like transitional moment where you figure out what you want to do next. What I'm saying is essentially I have found the hardest thing about being in commercials is that commercials, they're always going to be made. They have to be made because people have things to sell and there's just like a churn to commercials that for me, you know, when I like finish a project and I'm trying to create space to identify the way forward on a film or an idea or this little hint of something that I feel like I should follow and then like boom, another commercial just comes out of, like, Mm. comes out of nowhere like a battering ram, you know? Mm. Um, And I'm going like, oh my God, like, should I engage? I should engage. I don't have infinite money. Like, I need to do this. I need to do this to take, you know, I need to take care of my family. Like, I have this stuff or whatever. And then I turn my attention to it. And then I put all the things that I was kind of, all those quiet little threads and trails that I was following I have to put on the shelf so I can turn my attention to a very rigid and structured process I start to engage I give them two to three weeks 
of my time and then I find out I didn't get it. Okay, fine. Uh. Now I turn my attention back. <laughs> I got to pull my thing off the shelf again, right? And I'm starting to work on the yeah. thing on the shelf. And then they call me again a couple of days later. Like, hey, there's another one. Like, do you want to engage? And I'm like, well, it's been now it's been three weeks since I've done anything. Like, I should, I guess I should. Okay, I'll do it. And I, I engage on it now that's three weeks of my time. I put my thing back on the shelf. And then I'm working on that. For me, in 2019, from February to June of 2019, that's all I did was lose commercials. But I gave them five or six months of my time that I didn't – I was no further down the road on my own film or whatever. And that was purely because I needed to make money to pay my rent and – take care of my family and like there's a reason that there's so many trust fund kids in this business <laughs> because I think that if you can you it it does feel like it's important to protect space at the beginning for that the idea or the relationship or the book or the article or the conversation or whatever it is that sparks you down the the, the road to go all right this is like this is what I want to kind of pursue and that if you just work all the time, there's like you just roll right over that kind of the quiet voice that I think points you in the right direction, if that makes sense. And so yeah. I feel like for wow. you to say, like my my wife was the breadwinner during those two years, I think is like the gift that she gave is that she helped put up a wall around that space you know like to help create some of that space in which like you don't have to yes there are like go do this go speak go try and get some branded pieces whatever but like if you know that it's not all on you to make rent that month do you feel like there was an incubation period that was created because of that for you like did your film come out of that two years i guess is my Totally. Okay. Totally. Totally. I mean, not only did that film come out, Ghosts of Sugarland came out. Ah, right. Okay. Like I think um I mean, yeah, like it's just I think, you know, people forget like Angley worked so hard to become a director and was just failing miserably. And he was about to go back to like school to go become a coder or something. Huh. Like I think or a computer programmer or something. Yeah. Like and his wife was like the breadwinner for I don't know how many fucking years until he got his first thing off the ground. Right. And I mean, it was like 10, 15 years or something. It was crazy. Like it was, it was a long time. And this was back in the day when you had studios and you needed permission from people, right? To like, you know, do anything. And if, if I didn't have a partner that believed in me and was able to give me the space to, to take this, mm. I think take these risks, it wouldn't have happened. And I think then another thing that I wanted to also say was that at a certain point, you know, you, you still have to take a leap. It's not like everything came together and she's like, because, you know, she ended up leaving her job because she wasn't really happy where, where, where she was. And, you know, I was finally, then I was going to start making enough. But at the time when she did leave her job, it wasn't like everything was set for Mogul Mowgli, the, you know, my, my uh, fiction de debut, whatever, <laughs> like, you know, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. they call it, my narrative fiction debut, right? Um, it wasn't even set yet. It was like, it wasn't greenlit. It was just that I think, you know, we had the beginnings of the financing in place and we knew that there was a small opening where we could do the filming. That's all we really knew at the time. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, but it was just like enough to like take that leap. So yeah, there's a lot of trust and leap and you know, that like 
you know, there's a lot of risks that you're going to have to take no matter what it is, because there's never going to be a clear time of like, this is great. All these variables are right. So now I'm going to, it, it's, and it's never going to be exactly the way you picture. It's like having, a, you know, it's like when you have a kid, it's like, you'll, you could be trying for a while and then it finally happens and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is when it's happening yeah. or oh maybe God. not, you know? So it's like, no. or maybe you don't even have kids and you're trying for a long time and you have to find another way if you want to adopt or or, you know, be a foster parent, right? Like, so it's just like, it's, it's, it's the adaptability to, to the how, you know, of how you're going to yeah. try to achieve, you know, what it is. So two questions within that context. Number one, what was important about narrative, about scripted work for you to pursue? And then secondarily, I'd love to hear how that pursuit within this time period led you to this film. So... After These Birds Walk was, was out, Riz Ahmed, uh, this actor, was working on the night of and in New York. So he was living in New York and Omar Malik became friends with him. My, my co-director was like, hey, you got to meet this guy. This guy's really interesting. I was like, I don't know if I'm really interested in meeting actors, man. Like, it's not my thing. Like, I just want to, you know, I kind of want to do my own thing. And, and but anyway, we ended up meeting and I was just like, holy shit, this guy is like a bag of just like, fun and openness mm. and and heart like he's just all heart and i'm like either he's a really good actor at playing and like fooling me or yeah. he's just a really good guy yeah, yeah. so you know and then like we had a few meetings and he always disarmed me by saying things that i just thought were really intelligent really open very like forgiving and we just started riffing on ideas together and mm. at the time omar and i were working on some like we're like oh maybe we just meet here we can just be like this with him but at that time like it just we weren't really able to nail something that i think omar and i were both excited about or something that like we could all get all three of us could get excited about so it just kind of all like whittled away and what was exciting about for omar was omar's career as a dp started just like blossoming after these birds walk because i mean it's a, it's a beautifully shot film yes, yeah. and and every, yeah, thank you. And like everyone uh, was just like, oh, we want to work with this guy. And I was just so happy that he was so busy. And, you know, basically now he works for like all the like the top documentary film, like directors like want to work with him. And he himself, I think, is such a talented writer. And I think he's working on his own things. But I think, you know, through the Art of Nonfiction program, through Sundance that we were a part of, we started doing a lot of writing exercises. And I realized that there was something so special about this part of it that I wanted to explore that more. And something that I realized just like with some of the, the projects that we were doing that, that that fell apart, like we there was one project we were doing in Egypt. And I realized that I'm very interventional. Like I like to intervene a lot. I like to be I like my presence felt in the film. Yeah. And not like in a sense of like not in the sense of it's like, well I want people to know that I'm here and like and but but, but more in the sense of like it's obvious that I'm here and I don't want to hide that. Right. You know what right. I mean? Totally. And I feel like there's, and, and I have a sense of like, ah, oh, I think there's a way to construct things in a really exciting way. And I want to do more of that. And so I think being in Egypt and seeing sort of my own limitations with Verite and, you know, not having like perhaps maybe a production designer or somebody, you know, like a choreographer, like I was just like, okay, maybe there's a way for me to start writing these things and building that. And I think, one of the one of the people, but things like for, for even stuff like this, man. Like for me, I've realized because I've I've like been battling this really low self esteem for a long time, this like lack of confidence. Was I needed people to tell me, hey, this is possible. Mm. So I had friends, like I had a playwright friend named Hamad Chaudhry, 
was an incredible playwright who just had a play, I think, two years ago that opened at the New York Theater Workshop. And, you know, this is an in beautiful play and he was there living with me near in Astoria and he would always be over my house and he was just like dude just write just write mm-hmm. and you know and, and Riz was somebody that was always like you know and just like texting me like hey when are we working on something wow. which was very kind of him so I was just like and then there was Cinereach which is this incredible film arts organization Leah Giblin who was always like hey what are you working on what are you doing right like <laughs> let's see how we can help you so there's just a few of these people that kind of had a little bit of interest, so I was just like, oh, okay, so I guess there is something here. But but the funny thing is, man, like all these people can be knocking on your doors or everyone's interested or like, yeah, you should do this, but you're the one that's going to have to bleed on the paper. You know, <laughs> like no one's going to bleed for you. So how do you right? take like, the leap? People, how do you take the leap? Um, you, what you do is you just clear out your schedule. So I, you know, I didn't have anything coming. I had a few things come in that I had to say no to. Because I also realized that it's not, there were a few things that I realized when I left advertising. One was the reason why I also left. Because after, after like I got fired at Saatchi, I then did work back in advertising and had a, had a great job. But then I was at, when I was over at BBDO, I was with these incredible creative directors. And I saw that they would come up with a great idea. And then two seconds later, they would like shoot it down themselves. I'm like, wait, that was really good. It's like, nah, it's not that good. Mm. And what, what hit me, and I think I've said this to you before, is that they lost their instincts. Their instincts were so shot down by, by like clients and other like, you know, senior creative directors and all these people, like the, the accounts. And, and I was just like, oh my God, they don't even know when they have a good idea anymore. Like that's fucked. That's like, I can't, I can't be around this. Like that really scares me. So I saw that limitation also come in branded content. So I think after the really, I would say traumatic experience of 2016, where two projects that I was on were both like I was taken off of. I realized at this point, the only thing I really have is me, is myself. And that's got to be the thing that I have to work on to get better because that's what worked before. So I have to find that thing that fascinates me, that that weird thing that, that, that I can really push on, push forward with. And really, man, it came down to like, came down to this relationship where Riz and I started building and like he became this weird muse for me. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. and, 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 you know, he was filming Venom and he was, in, he was in and out of New York and he became this like kind of, he became like a, a star, you know what I mean? And the like process of our friendship, which is hilarious, but also exciting. And like, but he always had this like really level-headed vibe, you know? And, and we knew that like we were going to do something. He just wasn't sure what it would look like. And, you know, it was 2018 where Cinereach, you know, threw some money our way. And we went to Pakistan for about two and a half weeks. Mm. And uh, I went to London, did some research there. And then I went to Pakistan. And I had a, a semblance of an idea of a film that I wanted to do dealing with illness and the irrelevance of an artist. And this, this idea of like what is home. And it was going to go back and forth between Pakistan and London. But... You know, and Riz and I did this trip to Pakistan, so we can also see like how would we collaborate together? What would our friendship look like on the ground? And it was exciting, man. Like I think that's when I started to really feel like a connection with him, mm. and I could see how he was willing to throw himself into such beautiful circumstances. And I mean, I had massive imposter syndrome, you know, of like, oh man, like does he really want to work with me, or is he just like he had this like three week free and. You know, now we're out here together. And and also, I think, like, maybe, but, but I also realize that we all have that feeling, right? Like, I think 
you know, he had this feeling of wanting to impress me because when you come from a documentary, you don't really give a shit about these like the kind actors, of acting type yeah. things. You're just like, yeah, you don't. Because I think the one thing that I realized what's so great about documentary filmmakers is that like a lot of them can tell like when somebody's performing on camera or like when someone's yeah. putting a face on, you know what sure. I mean? Like you can, you have this instinct where you go, oh, this person really wants to be on camera. And that's who you don't want to film. Yeah, you know what totally. I mean? Like you stay away from those types. So I think there's a lot of that in in Hollywood, there's a lot of actors that are unfortunately really good at being on camera, and it's so obvious that they like to be on that it actually just turns you off a bit. Yeah. But 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 I think what what I did see what I did see in Riz was somebody that had a similar itch of exploring a different side of himself mm. that I think perhaps he was being I wouldn't say pigeonholed because the dude's been playing such weird roles, but like. I still felt like even in the roles that he was playing, like there wasn't that breath of excitement in it, right? Like I thought his role in Nightcrawler was amazing. I loved him in Four Lions. I thought he was incredible in it. And just to see like how far we can go in a in a personal experience, I was like, that's something that I think I'm, I'm maybe good at doing. It's like mm. so. So really, I think the time it boxed on for us together was this experiment of like, okay, what what's our relationship like? Is this something that we want to continue? to work on and i think the tough ryan the really like interesting and weird part of all this is that you can't okay like like you can't you can't predict the outcome at at the moment you know what i mean you can't do these things hoping for an outcome to be in a certain way you know what i mean like even when we were out in 2018 together the goal was oh yeah i'll I'll spend a few weeks to write the film and then by the end of like the summer we'll, we'll be filming it or something right like it doesn't work like that it took it took another year in 2019. That's when we started filming, right. you know, and the film was completely different. It just became like a, a very internalized family drama that takes place in London. It literally, like most of the film takes place in a hospital. Right. You know what I mean, totally. So, I'm, I'm curious, like if you were experienced with him, especially watching him kind of his career explode throughout the course of your relationship with him, basically. Did you feel like, I know you mentioned imposter syndrome. Did you feel like you were using him at some point or like, did it feel like you were having to negotiate external kind of ephemera around him? You you know what I mean? Like, I think you were kind of stitching your self to him in some interesting way in the beginning. Were those things you were struggling with? And then I think conversely, how did that affect the way that you were writing or the, the way that the story was developing? Look, so I would never, like knowing now what I know, right? Like to base a film where you attach talent before you have the script is very dangerous. Yeah. And I would, and I think we've talked about this in no, the past, totally. but I would, I would never do that again. But at the same time, I'm so happy I did because the anxiety around it is, if something else came out that, and this happens to everybody, right? Like this is a very common classic thing in Hollywood where you attach a talent, right? Particularly with film that happens and everything's going really well, but then the talent gets offered this really mega big film that like gangsters or whatever. And then it's like, great, you only have Ryan Gosling for three weeks now. You know what right. I mean? So now you got to get all Ryan Gosling done in three weeks or Daniel Craig is doing Bond, so now this thing that you're going to do with him is delayed for a whole other year. Right. You know, and that's a very scary thing, you know, and, and I think that's also unfortunately a part of Hollywood, right? But I think for your first film, you don't want to do that, right? You want to you do something 
that is completely you, completely yours, and you want to do it the best way that you can. Uh, and then, you know, like write in the best way you can and then attach the talent, yeah. maybe, right? Yeah. If somebody's willing to work with you at that level. I did it the other way and I don't regret it. I feel like I am so, I'm, I'm, you know, like anything that you do, I'm still super close to it because I just literally, you know, um, finished the film. It's been like only two months since we premiered. So it's, it's really tough for me to have clarity, to separate myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, so it's all so I still just see nothing but the problems with the film. Sure. It's so sensitive, you know, the stuff is so sensitive to say, but it's so important to say because I think, here's why this is important to say, because I know a lot of filmmakers that are chasing actors. Yes. You know what I mean? And they're chasing actors to no end. And it's a very scary thing because the thing is, the actors don't need you. You, I mean, sorry, yeah, sorry, the actors need you. You don't need the actors, yeah. right? Yeah. But the unfortunate problem of the Sundances of the world, the South Bys of the world, even the Berlins of the world or whatever, right? They only, they like those star names because they love those photos for press and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, when, when they add, when they add a film to the lineup, it's going to be Riz Ahmed stars and blah, 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 blah. And you, you know what I mean? And then like, you know, really, and that's fine. And that's okay because that's what you're also getting is you're getting butts in the seats because, you know, Ryan, you're going to probably see the next film that, you know, whatever, some small director that you've been following will watch. But a lot of people from the general audience, they're looking for these names because the names are also perhaps bringing a certain quality, right? Yeah. So, um, but at the same time, man, like, not, just like, like, there's just the star power aside. There's also the level of acting professionalism that a real actor brings. Yeah. Like a true actor is. And that's something that, like, you know, you've seen the film now, so maybe, you know, you can speak to that more than I can because, of course, I'm biased. I'm going to say that, like, Riz is phenomenal in the film and Riz is, you know, an extraordinary talent, you know. So, so I think that is really what excited me about it, you know. And I think it was really about, okay, what can I learn in this relationship and how can I make sure that I'm bringing my best part? Because it's, it's a, like, I mean, the, the film is a culmination of his life and my life put together, right? Like, my family, his family, they're very similar anyway. Stories about, you know, health in my family, health in his family, and taking a lot of these aspects and bringing them to the front. Like, that was really what we wanted to do. And to do it in a way that I think was really exciting. And I think because he is the latitude that I had with writing a weirder film, right? Because I do think that the concept of the film and, you know, the departures that it takes are a bit different from general cinematic indie film, social realism things, right? Like the general exercise of like your debut film looks similar to, you know, and it's not to knock on these films, but they look like really beautiful docu-real films, <laughs> right? That's generally the way. No, no, and, that, and that's fine, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and they might have like a cool construct or a quirky thing in it, right? But this is a bit, it starts off that way, but then I think it takes its own weird departures but it's still like you know its own you know epic you know whatever it is what it is but i think having somebody at his level of performance allows me to go weirder and further because i know that he can anchor things in such a powerful way where you know where, where when you have a dude with like a with flowers like haunting him you know like in the in, in the hospital or in the mosque like there's 
a sense of of it really affecting the character. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think he's able to bring that I think maybe an actor that's not as talented wouldn't have, you know, or somebody that may be a bit more newer to the, to the process. Well, and I think I think as well, like, you know, if, if you were to look at your film on paper, first time narrative director, like Riz is attached, that reads differently than made a feature doc and met Riz along the way. And then like you spent a couple of years like interacting with him off and on. You know what I mean? Like this film grew out of a relationship as opposed to like, hey man, I got like, you know, we met because our agents put us together and like we should do something sometime. <laughs> okay, cool. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I do think that there's a difference between that kind of natural outgrowth that feels either serendipitous or fortuitous or at least curious enough to pursue. You know what I mean? That to me doesn't look like you sitting around going like, man, the only way I'm going to get a movie made is if I get a famous actor. Like it feels like it grew out of something um, organic for lack of a better word. Yeah, I hope so. And, and I hope it shows in the film. It does. Right? Like, that doesn't it like, doesn't feel yeah, like you like, went off and like, when I watched the movie without even knowing the story, I was like, I feel like Riz and Basama have known each other for a while is how, that's how I felt <laughs> watching the film, you know? Oh, great. In a lot of ways, I feel like you kind of got the best of both worlds in that sense, you know, because you were able to kind of like create this little ensemble piece. It just so happened that Riz is the <laughs> a pretty well-known actor, you know what I mean? But the the film felt so personal as well. So it was like very clear that it was baked in, that relationship was baked in from the beginning. It was not grafted on to something. Yeah, and and I think something to also note is that like my own mentioning of of this feeling is it's it's like I think I think it comes from the lack of confidence. In a way, what I'm saying is actually kind of offensive because I'm saying don't work with your friends on a film because sure because <laughs> that's what technically that like that that's the truth of it, right? It's like at one point we were just so enveloped in each other's lives and we were going to do this thing together. It was just a question of when, not. You know, and, and I guess that's what it was always to him that we were going to do this. But in my mind, I wasn't sure if it was ever going to happen because I've had so many things fall, fall off, yeah. right? Yeah. And fall through that like you always, and I think you, you might, you, you can probably attest to this as well as the life of being, you know, a filmmaker. Yeah. And, um, totally. you know, it's just that you just don't know when, when these things are going to happen. And, and I think the, the, the sad part about narrative and something, the reason why I think a lot of people jump in first the documentary, at least in my my understanding, right? Particularly people of color, when you look at a lot of the people that make documentaries nowadays, um, or, or, or whenever whenever I see people of color coming out, they usually come out from documentary. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because there's a not a need for permission. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and we don't have like for a lot of people, like even you, Ryan, like I don't know if you have you didn't have a lot of connections, right? No, like I you no connections. Won a contest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, you won no. a contest. And then <laughs> a your contest, contest that allowed yeah. you to, yeah, the 5D, yeah, your 5D contest. Then, you know, like, and then somebody gave you a note saying, great, now you go back and you work for five years and something. Right. And then, you know, maybe you'll start building. And that's what, that's what it was. Like you, you then, instead of just like asking for permission, started building a community around you. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. And of course you didn't mean to do that, right? Like it just started happening organically. And, and it came from like a desire to give, right? To like understand and learn. And in that learning, there's giving. And that's how this community started forming around you, which then also then, you know, led to a lot of really exciting people getting to know you, you know, and really cool people like wanting to, to work with you. 
you know, and, but, but sorry, but what I'm trying to say is that like, it's this waiting game thing that is ruining it for a lot of filmmakers where I think people are waiting sometimes yeah. and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And then sometimes like, and I think the, the, the sad truth is that when you are looking at What's funny is that like our film's considered a very low budget film, but for me, it's the biggest budget thing I've ever worked on in my life. So for me, it was it felt like a big budget production. <laughs> so I mean, the reason why I mentioned that is, but but it still took a lot of people permissions, right? We needed permission from a few people to make the film, you know, and we were blessed with incredible financiers and execs that that were a part of the project. You know, um, Cinerage were the first ones to jump on board. And then BBC came on board and, you know, then the San Francisco Film Invest came on and then Vice came on at the end. So we were able to find this really exciting group of people that just wanted to make the best possible film from. It's amazing. It was really a dream. It was a dream way that it came together. But I also knew that when I went into like my pitch with BBC, it was just like, I'm making this fucking film. If you guys want to come on board, that's great. Mm. But if you don't, like, that's, that's fine too. Like, this is happening. Yeah. And, and I think that's sort of the approach where like, I've had to have now where it's like, this is happening and I'm going to build this ship and I'm going to start moving this ship as, as I'm building it. Right. Like, and it's going to be an inclusive ship and I'm going to be learning as I'm building it. And I want all of us to just start moving because for the longest time, man, like I just sat, sat there waiting for like people to get back to me. And because of all this waiting, like I got so frustrated, I picked up my camera and I did Ghost of Sugarland. Yes. You know, and Ghost of Sugarland is a documentary I did that, you know, that, that I shot in like my backyard in, in, uh, in Sugarland over, over a summer break when I was back visiting my, my parents after Ramadan ends. There's a holiday called Eid. And I was like, I was like, oh, I'm back for a few weeks. Let me just, I had an interesting construct and I had access to my friends. So I started to, you know, do this little doc that did quite well in itself. It sure did, man. <laughs> did Ghost of Sugarland help at all with Mogul? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, they were having concurrent. They were. Right? Okay. Like, I, I wasn't sure timeline-wise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the timeline is actually quite interesting. So Mogul Mowgli. Okay, the way Mogul. Yeah. So Mogul Mowgli happens. Um, it's, like, it's like something that's in conversation with all these financiers around the same time when I basically put my pencil down. And I start shooting this thing on the side because I just need, you know, one, I needed money. And <laughs> I mean, no, I also just like, it wasn't more than money thing. It was, I needed to know that I had this creative voice still in me. Like I still had a filmic voice in me. And also I think there was the story that I really wanted to tell yeah. about my friend. Yeah. You know, of, of course, right? Like that that's the core of it. But it was also something inside of me where like, you know, coming back as, as a documentary filmmaker, just doing something for the sake of documentary and not as a branded content thing. Like after these birds walk, nothing had ever come out. So when it came out, like I remember a few people reached out to me like, oh yeah, where have you been? We were wondering where you were. Oh my gosh. Like, wow. Oh shit. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, it's God, I've been out for, for a few years. Yeah. Holy shit. Wow. So yeah, but, but what's interesting was by the time we found out that we were premiering at Sundance and, you know, I, we were already set up to make our film. So what helped with Ghost of Sugarland was it gave me the confidence, I think. It's a weird thing because when you're doing fiction, so much of it falls on you mm. and where uh, people look to you for advice and they look to you for guidance and direction. You're a fucking director, right? So to see a short be so well received and then to win and then get picked up and then you know then also just like have this incredible moment was really exciting and also 
gave me the confidence that I needed to kind of move forward and be as bold as I was, I think, ah, with a lot of the decisions I made. Yeah. And I think maybe I was too bold sometimes, like, for <laughs> the decisions I made. How so? But it's fine. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, we shot the film in 4.3, and I don't know if I would do that again, <laughs> but I'm happy I did, you know? Yeah. But I mean, because I know, like, I, mean, I think marketability, like, it actually does affect you, I'm realizing. And I, you know, Interesting. yeah, I mean, I know it's a small, stupid thing. And I'm also saying that I think out of insecurity because, you know, it's like, well, okay. damn. Well, like, let's, let's, before we leave that, why did you decide to do it in 4.3? Was that part of the visual construct? Yeah. You? Yeah. I felt this was a portrait of an artist in progress. And I wanted this idea of, of a film that feels incomplete. Like I wanted that because ah, okay. I feel like I, I myself am, am, am incomplete. Like I'm finding myself, I'm a work in progress and I want the audience's help in filling out the rest. Yes. So I think so much of this for me is, is an element of restraint. Like some of my favorite filmmakers are Bresson and, yeah. um, you know, he, a lot of his work, like, uh, is deeply spiritual. It's quiet. It's very, it's like, it's very austere filmmaking. It's very bare bones. And I don't necessarily think that everything that I do will be like this, but I felt like for film that I knew there was going to take place mostly in a hospital, it made sense for me to then stick with, would stick with the framing that felt like it wasn't like cinematically sweeping, yeah. but it was like a strong paper cut. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, for sure. That was very much like a, you know, like Ozu with Tokyo Story and how it's this like slow burn of a thing. And even though our film, I wouldn't say is like necessarily a slow burn, it's quite, it quite moves, it moves quite fast. And it's like only like 82 minutes long or something. We, we wanted it to feel like almost, I wanted to feel like you were going through a tunnel in the train and, mm. and it feels very much like you have this strong tunnel vision and you're stuck with one character mm. and it's very much through him. So, but, but it wasn't like this, some people like, oh, it's because it's like boxed in, you're boxed in his life. And then and that, and I was like, yeah, I guess maybe. But, but for me, it was always like, I knew that it was going to end with him, uh, you know, the way it ends. And I, and I, and I wanted, I wanted us to also kind of help. I wanted the audience to help to, to film the rest of the story. I like that. I, that's, that's an yeah. interesting way of saying it. I, I do feel like the, yeah, the, the like, oh, he's all boxed in thing is just like, that's the cheapest interpretation of 4-3. feel like it's just the easiest. People are like, why'd you do that? I guess this is it because it's he's boxed in is like the first thing people always say, which I think is really interesting. Was there ever discussion of changing, like mixing aspect ratios depending on his hallucinations? Yeah, 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 we did. We did. But I think um, I decided against that because I've seen a lot of films move with different aspect ratios. I always found it really jarring and very noticing. Like I always notice it when it happens. We decided to not do that. And I, and I think it was always important that like I wanted the hallucinations to almost feel very much a part of the world. Mm. Like I didn't want it to feel like it was yeah. that much of a departure from it. Because I think it, it just it just makes everything always feel urgent and never like, a, like oh, it's a flashback. It's like, no, it's all present. It's all happening. Yeah, so, totally. So, so I think there's always something about like when, when I'm being told that I'm now in a different something, whether it's like through a filter on a screen or something like it's, yeah, I don't know. No, I, yeah, I like that. I thought about it after the first one, one of the flashbacks I couldn't, like the beginning of the flashback and the end of the flashback, I just felt like I all of a sudden got dropped into it. You know, like I had not necessarily recognized the beginning. And in thinking about it later, I was like, I'm, I really appreciate that you didn't do something to visually cue me that we had kind of moved into 
a different perception just because I felt disoriented for a moment in a way that is what it feels like when you have that kind of the question of like, is what's, is this real? Like, is what's happening real right now? You know, like, it's not like our aspect ratio changes in our mind and we're like, oh no, everything's, this isn't right. You know? Yeah. I thought it was really an interesting choice for sure. Yeah. It was tough, man. It's so tough. That's another thing. Like you make all these choices. And I think in the edit, like even when you're doing it, you're like, oh man, maybe I should have. And you know, and all these things, like if, it, you, you think through all these things so much. And uh, it's so funny. I feel like, I think I said this to myself, like after the film like premiered or something, it's like, I'm anything that anyone says to me, any criticism, I probably already heard it. You know, <laughs> like, like, and it, like, it's probably something that I've already internalized. So no one's going to say anything to me that I have not heard. But I think something that happens, unfortunately, but it's also helpful, right? Because after the film's done and it's out, it's like, almost like harder in documentary than it is. I mean, harder harder in fiction than documentary, I think, because you're making so many of these clear decisions. Sorry, one second, Ryan, my, my son just woke up. All right, I'm going to cut it there for this part one of my two-part conversation with Bassam Tariq. His kids woke up. We were actually recording this episode literally in the middle of the night, and at some point during the conversation, both of our kids woke up independently. Everybody was still kind of in their homes in quarantine still, and loud talking, I guess, woke up the kids uh, on both fronts. So I'm going to cut the conversation there, and we will pick it back up next week for part two of my conversation with Bassam Tariq. Thanks for listening to The Process Dispatch, a conversation about directing between directors. Original music, mix, and editing by Jake McMullen, produced by myself and Anna Ramos, designed by Tyler Swanner, and episode artwork by Sean Bay. Please follow us on all social platforms at The Process Dispatch. For show notes and further information, visit theprocessdispatch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.